Anchoring your faith to your family. Anchoring your family in your faith. This is important. Grandparenting is our joy. It's our responsibility, but it certainly is a great joy. And it's important, and it's beneficial. And tonight's uh, devotional, I've titled God's Grand Earth and How We Treat It. I want my grandchildren to look at creation and think of God. I don't want them to look at a tree and just see a tree. I want them to look at a tree and see a fantastic God and how he designs things. God revealed himself to us primarily in two ways. And I have it in your notes. The first way is through special revelation. That's God communicating his word. That's your fill-in. His word to the writers of Scripture. And had he not communicated to the writers of Scripture, there's a lot about God that we would not know. Special revelation is what it's called. If you ever go to Bible college and you take a theology class, you're going to talk about special revelation. And you're going to talk about natural revelation. That's the second item. Also called general revelation. It refers to knowledge about God that is discovered through natural means, such as observing the physical universe. So there's a witness of God's word in our hearts, and there's a witness of creation. And when you see creation, it should tell us something about God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So we should look at creation and see God. Now that's what I want for my grandkids. I want them to see God everywhere in their universe. He's a creator and he's a designer. And he took great care in creating this universe. And his fingerprint is everywhere. God is a God of science. The Bible is not primarily a science book. But when it touches science, it is scientifically accurate. And many science-minded people, not a few, but many science-minded people of yesteryear made significant discoveries that started first with studying the Bible. One of these scientists was Matthew Mari. So let's throw his picture up here on the screen. Matthew Mari, 1806 to 1873. He began his career as a naval officer. He was appointed to his position by U.S. Senator Sam Houston. And through a freak accident when on land, he was not able to return to the sea, so he turned his attention to pursuits on the ocean that had particular interest to him. And on one occasion, Mari was sick and bedridden, and a family member was reading the Bible to him and happened to be reading Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, verse 8, the Scripture says, The fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. And Mari, laying there in bed, thought about that. The paths of the seas. Seas have paths, 
If God says seas have paths, they, they must exist. And if they do exist, I'm, I'm going to find them. And he did. He discovered currents. He discovered that there are currents that if you sail in the current, like a conveyor belt, it propels you along. And you can travel easier if you get in the right currents in the sea. And through his discovery, it greatly reduced sailing times. And they would cross the oceans in the north or the south, depending upon the season. They sailed at certain seasons. They get in the currents discovered by Matthew Mari because he looked for them from reading Psalm 8 and verse 8. Another verse caught his attention. The wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth around continually. The wind returneth again according to its circuits. Huh. There are circuits in the wind? And so he started searching for circuits in the wind. And you know what he discovered? We call it jet streams today. But he discovered it because of something he read in the Bible and it put him on the path to searching. And that gave birth to modern meteorology. Now, Mari was criticized for his use of scriptures in the scientific research, and as he was, here's the way he responded. And I quote, I have been blamed by men of science both in this country and in England, for quoting the Bible in confirmation of the doctrines of physical geography. The Bible, they say, was not written for scientific purposes and is therefore of no authority in matters of science. I beg pardon. The Bible is authority for everything it touches. The Bible is true, and science is true. They are both true. And when your men of science with vain and hasty conceit announce the discovery of disagreement between them, rely upon it. The fault is not with the witness or his record, but with the worm who essays to interpret evidence which he does not understand. Strong Bible-believing man. In addition to mapping both air and water currents, Maury developed the National Observatory, helped found the U.S. Naval Academy, the National Weather Bureau, was instrumental in the transatlantic telegraph cable being laid in the ocean, and because of his accomplishments, he earned several titles. One of those, Father of Oceanography, Father of Naval Meteorology, Pathfinder of the Seas. Now, since God created this world, it only makes sense that he would tell us some truth about it in, in the scripture. And he does. In Psalm 19, now for time's sake, we're not going to turn there, but Psalm 19, verse 1 through 6 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. So when you look up in the sky, and you, you look at the heavens and the stars and the planets, it's talking about the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork, what he can do. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So it doesn't matter if you're in China or India or America or South America or Europe or Africa 
or what language you speak, you can look up in the starry sky and that language speaks to you that God is a creator and he's a marvelous one. The sun is set in, the, in space as a tabernacle. It goes from one end of heaven unto the other according to its circuit. So there's a, a, a circuit that the sun follows. Now, I'm going to mention that again in just a minute. But I want to teach my grandchildren that God made this earth. And this earth has a marvelous design because God is a marvelous designer. And let's look at what God created and look for his fingerprint in it. I want to give my grandkids this mindset that God is everywhere and he's powerful and he creates and what he creates is just marvelous. In Ecclesiastes 1 verses 7, 4 through 7, one generation passeth and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also riseth, it riseth and and the sun goeth down and hasteneth to the place where he arose. Now I know, I know this has been a, point, a, a passage that scientists that want to scoff at the Bible scoff at this. And they say, see, the, it says the sun is rising and setting. The sun doesn't rise and the sun doesn't set. The earth rotates. So they look and they say, that's wrong. The Bible's wrong. But the Bible was written, that was written from a man's viewpoint of how it appears to him. And you can just turn on the newscast tomorrow morning and it will tell you sunrise today and it'll give you an exact time and sunsets an exact time and nobody calls the weather station and say, don't you guys know the sun doesn't rise and set? You should be talking about earth rotation. But it appears to be rising and setting and we use that terminology. And God just used that terminology because that's the way it appears. The wind goeth toward the south and turneth about to the north and whirleth about continually and the wind returneth again to its circuits. It's talking about jet streams. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. And you know what that is? That is the hydrological cycle. That's exactly what that verse is saying. The rivers run into the, into the bays it bays, the water gets into the oceans and in the oceans and the sun and bakes in the sun and it evaporates and it, as it evaporates and it goes up and the wind blows it over the land and it cools and it falls as rain on the mountains and it makes its way down the rivers and, it, and it's a cycle that goes around and around and around. Now how in the world did Solomon describe the hydrological cycle? God told him, because God knows. God made it. I want my grandkids, as they grow up and read the Bible, I want to point out to them things like this where they can see this is really accurate. God is really accurate. Activities with grandkids. Now here's where I'm going. I want my grandkids to see this and all that God created and marvel at him. So I want them to, to do things like this. And I, I'm telling you some of the things I've done with them already and will be doing. We lay, we've laid out in the field and just looked up at the stars 
at night. Now, when you're out the wilds down in North Carolina, it's black. <laughs> it's dark. You don't have the light pollution that you have in a more populated area like this. But we lay there and we look up into, into the sky. And um, you know what? I, I always look for a constellation. Now, there's, I don't know how many there are, but there's one that I know. And that is, everybody knows the Big Dipper. So I'm looking for the Big Dipper and to point out to my grandkids. Let's go through some slides here. <clears throat> this has to do with nature and family. And I'm not going to belabor this too much. Now, from here, it looks real muddy. Does it look clear to you? It's, am I just so close it looks muddy to me? It's hard to see? Okay. One day we're going to be in a new auditorium with a new screen. It's going to be fantastic. This, this is not working. <laughs> ah. You know what? Ah, okay. Thank you. Well, I can't get my... All right, back up one. Back up another one. All right, this is a uh, rock formation, and it's called the Split Rock. My grandfather was born there at the, at the base of the Split Rock. It's a huge rock, and it's split right down the middle, and when you walk through the Split Rock, you can look on your right and look on your left, and you can see the right fits neatly into the left. So, so obviously it was one rock that was split and grandpa always insisted it split when Jesus Christ was, uh, was crucified and the rocks rent. And so that was, his, uh, that was his belief and my granddaughter is right there in the middle of the split rock. She, she walked through it with me. Next, now in 1950, next, next slide. In 1950, grandpa bought the split rock and uh, purchased it on August the 4th. And he chiseled his initials and grandma's initials in the split rock. And since that time, family, all kinds of family, aunts and uncles and cousins, have gone and chiseled their initials on the split rock. It's the family rock. All right, the next one. So I wanted my grandchildren to be a part of this. I want them to identify with, uh, with family heritage. So I, I took a hammer and chisel, and we went to visit the split rock. And my initials, my daughter's initials, my granddaughter, my grandson, my grandson, the blood descent, and uh, we, we made sure our initials were on the family split rock in Sago, West Virginia. All right, next slide. So that's one thing, and then we, everybody's touching theirs, and we got a picture of it. Why am I doing that? I'm doing that because I want them to identify with family. I want them to say in their heart, I love my family. My family's important to me. So I do things that try to build family identity. All right, let's go on. <clears throat> this is my grandfather on the other side. of the, This is my mom's dad. Uh, the other was my dad's dad. This is my mom's dad. And Grandpa had a log cabin in Queens, West Virginia. We went there every summer and spent uh, the, the summer playing in 1,700 acres of West Virginia wilderness. He didn't own all 1,700s. He owned, he owned a cabin and it was a club, and about 17 cabins in this club. They collectively owned this land. And uh, so I, I want you to see his hand right here. Next slide. Grandpa lost this finger and this finger building this bridge he's sitting on. That's why he's sitting there 
with his hand out there and uh, as he was building it chopped his two fingers off saw, saw them off didn't realize it and uh, doing it by himself anyway it, it was so long ago back then they didn't have the the technology to the medical know how to put them back on all right next slide so we went to camp we stood on the bridge and I tucked my two fingers under my wife tucked hers under my daughter tucked hers under <laughs> so everybody's got their fingers tucked under and we did that because on this everybody knows this is two finger bridge that's the name of it, two finger bridge and so we wanted this to be in our uh, Christmas card so we got a picture why am I doing that because I want my grandkids to identify with family heritage. I want it to be important to them. Let's go to the next slide. Um, I, want, I want my, I do things with my grandchildren. Now, he's, Canaan is cutting, he, or he's, uh, he's nailing with a Brad nailer, a pneumatic uh, air hose, pneumatic uh, nailer. Of course, he's got his goggles on, got his ear protection and, uh, and we made a birdhouse. And the next slide, his brother got in on the act. He's painting the, uh, the birdhouse. In fact, we made three. Oliver helped me make his. Canaan helped me make his. Brooklyn helped me make hers. And we went to Lowe's. They all bought the color paint, little thing of paint that they wanted their birdhouse. And then the last picture here. So uh, they, they get the birdhouses. They take them home. Next picture. And you have uh, the green one, the, the blue one, and the... Uh, pink one <clears throat> so they enjoy their birdhouses alright let's have the lights back up activities with kids nature hikes uh, it was a couple of years ago I went uh, we went down to see them at the wilds and uh, I, I said to them hey let's, let's take a hike in the woods they live in the woods they, they live at the wilds and so we hiked through the woods and as we hiked through the woods I pointed out things that they probably never think about I went over to a tree and I showed them on the north side of the tree you got all this moss growing. On the south side of the tree there's no moss. And I asked why does the moss grow on this side and it doesn't grow on this side? And then they would run over to the next tree. <gasps> this tree's just like it. They'd run to the next tree. <gasps> and they, would, they became enthralled with why are the trees like this? And so we talked about how on the north side it doesn't get the sunlight like the south side. And so I point out things of nature to them that they find interesting. We came across a stump. We sat down at the stump and we started counting the rings and we explained what the, the rings indicate, summer growth and winter growth. And Now to us, that may seem, oh, ho-hum, but to a little kid, this stuff is intriguing and they want to know. We looked at leaves and we talked about the, the veins in a leaf, like the veins in the back of your hand and the veins carry water from the roots up. We talk about how God, we're not, not talking about nature, we're talking about look how God created this and look how God created that. So it always comes back to God. We, under, we, we turned over rocks and looked for insects. They helped me cut a tree down. I think I'm going to mention that. That was a big deal to them. I told them when they come to visit me, we're going to cut a tree down. Well, on the way up, they stopped at Cracker Barrel to eat lunch and the uh, waitress that was waiting on them uh, they kept telling waitress, we're, we're going to go to Pop Pops. We're cutting a tree down when we get to Pop Pops. That was a big deal to them. Visit the zoo. Talk about animals. I spoke to the, to the kids uh, yesterday in chapel. 
And uh, one part of my message, I was talking about animals. And I, I was reading the passage in the Bible where God took the earth and he scooped it together and he made an animal and he brought the animal to Adam and Adam named it. You know, that's in Genesis chapter 1. So I, so I said, God, he made this animal and it's kind of round and it was kind of pinkish and it had a flat nose and it was snorting. And, and God brought this animal to Adam and Adam looked at it and said, kangaroo! Well, all the kids went crazy. <laughs> no! Pig! That's a pig! You know, it's easy to entertain kids to capture their imagination, to capture their attention. Do that with your grandkids. Capture their imagination. Make things interesting for the purpose of highlighting what God did. And, I, and, and, and I've talked to the kids that one day the lion and the lamb are going to lay down together. Jesus is coming back and he's going to set up a kingdom. And peace is going to reign in the kingdom. And even a lion and a lamb will snuggle up and sleep together. Man understanding God's design. Uh, design is your fill in there. You know, we think about science and God's earth. Earth science is actually the study of all fields of science that deal with planet earth. Reveals the awesome power and the wisdom of God. He created earth, he created atmosphere and dry land and seas and when he got done with the creating of it he stood back and he said it's good, it's really really good what he did. He placed man on this earth with the instruction to subdue it which means to productively work the earth that God has put us on so it will yield its riches and its productivity to us so we can accomplish God's purposes Man has been working to understand earth ever since. See, God put us here and left us to figure it out. He didn't tell us in the Bible about earth rotation and a uh, polar axis and longitude and latitude. He, he didn't map it for us. He, he gave us the earth and he let us have the joy of discovery and exploration. So in your notes, uh, mapping the earth, let's throw up this last slide here. Here's, here's the way it's mapped. There is a grid, imaginary, over this earth. Astronomers and mathematicians created this, and they superimposed it on the surface of the earth. And you know, explorers used this to, to their great asset in their travels, it charted their expeditions. We don't really deal with this grid because we live on the land. But if we lived on the oceans, if we were involved in shipping or we were actually on the ship piloting it, this grid means everything. It's a navigational grid. It's superimposed on the earth that is round. Isaiah tells us that God sits on the circle of the earth. How did Isaiah know that the earth was a circle? Because God told him it was. Even though long after Isaiah's day, it still was the prevailing idea that the earth was flat. 
There's an axis pole that stretches from the North Pole to the South Pole. And you note, uh, the equator, that's your fill-in, it's an imaginary line around the Earth at its greatest point in, in the middle. It runs perpendicular to the axis pole. Then you've got these imaginary lines from the North Pole to the South Pole that follows the curvature of the Earth. They're longitude lines. That is a Latin word that means length. So if you never understood what longitude meant, it means length. It's the length of the, of the meridian that goes from the North Pole to the South Pole. And then you have the circles that go around the Earth above the equator and below the equator. Those are latitudes. Latin for breath goes around the, the breadth of the earth. The meridian is one half of a circle. North pole to south pole running along the curvature, that's a meridian. Or from the south pole to the north pole, that's a meridian. And sailors had to know these things if they're going to sail the oceans and do it safely. It was a rudimentary understanding, but boy, it was helpful. And then they learned to measure they learned to measure their distances and their speeds. And I showed an, gave an illustration on a Sunday night a few weeks ago, a, a log line and, and how they had knots tied on the rope every 42 feet and they could calculate their, uh, their speed. When we talk about distances on land, we, we measure it in miles. It's called a statute mile, by the way, and you probably knew that. It's, it's miles, statute miles, and it's based on paces that we would walk. And... But a mile at sea is different than a mile on land. A mile on land is how many feet? 5,280 feet. And a, and a mile on the ocean is 6,028 or 38 or 0.2. Why is it different? Why is it a mile at sea different than a mile on land? Because a mile on land is based on paces that you walk. And there's no equivalent to that on the ocean. Nobody walks on water, except one. And he's not here right now. And, and when you walk, well, when you travel on land, you don't, we don't travel great distances. We might, an average day for us, we might go, you know, if, unless you're in the transportation industry, you might drive 10 miles or five miles or 20 miles or if you're in sales you might drive 100 miles or 150 I don't know you, you drive around a lot if you're a truck driver cross country then you'll drive hundreds of miles but if you're a pilot of a ship you travel thousands of miles not hundreds of miles thousands of miles you cross oceans so if you're going to go so far you need a better accurate measurement than just a statute mile. And so a nautical mile takes into account the curvature of the earth because you don't travel in a straight line on the oceans. You're traveling around the curvature of the earth and that mile on the, on the ocean takes into account the curvature. And the fill-in there is um, a nautical mile is roughly 1.15 statute miles. So it's a little bit longer than a mile on land. All right, we have a responsibility to God's creation. We have a responsibility. When it comes to this earth, God said that everything he made was good. And then he put man on this earth and he gave man a job to do. It's found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 31. And I'm going to go through these instructions. 
Here's, here's what they were to do. Adam and Eve were to reproduce after their kind. God put within Adam and Eve the ability to multiply their family through childbirth. They were supposed to do that. Number two, they were to fill the earth through childbearing. They were to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish. When it says to replenish, that means they were to fill it to the full. Okay, got that? They were to fill the earth to the full. They were to fill up the earth. God was not concerned about overpopulation because he built into his creation the ability to sustain life even when the earth was filled. It is man that gets worried about overpopulation. And when that was really big in the news back I mean, when I was in college and when I was in high school, the fear was we're going to overpopulate the earth, we're all going to starve. Back then, when they were crying that, you could take all of earth's population and put them inside the city limits of Jacksonville, Florida. Every man, woman, and child on planet Earth could fit inside the city limits of Jacksonville. Now, Jacksonville is a large city in landmass, maybe not as much in population, but they have, it's a huge land area. But when you can take the whole population of Earth back then and put it, now, obviously, they don't have much room, but that leaves a lot of land around Earth with nobody in it. Overpopulation was a scare, but there was not a reality. It should not have been a reality. But if you don't understand the Bible or you don't believe the Bible, you're just left with sometimes science falsely so-called. They were to subdue the earth and manage it to yield its production. The earth would sustain the human race because Adam and Eve were to control it. They were to supervise. That's your fill-in. They were to supervise what God created. They were to learn how to farm, how to grow food from the ground. And so they grew food. And some of the stuff they grew, grew in the dirt. And so they, so, and, and today we eat foods that grow inside the dirt. Potatoes, carrots, peanuts, I think. Don't peanuts grow down in the dirt? Yeah. And then we eat foods that grow on top of the dirt, though rooted in the dirt, such as lettuce, beans, tomatoes, watermelons. And then we eat food that grows on trees, apples and oranges and pears and cherries and bananas and mangoes and pineapples and dates and olives and figs, etc. Adam and Eve were to till the earth and to harvest the productivity that God built into his creation. He wanted them to learn how to do that. Four, exercise dominion over God's creation. That means rule over it. Take care of the land. Take care of the animals. Rule over them. Take care of people that are weaker than you. Take care of the waterways. You, we, they were to care for the environment that God put them in. There's a principle of stewardship in this. Moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now, here's what a steward is. The word, well, the word steward comes from the Greek word oikonomos, which means house and to distribute. It's someone that distributes or manages the affairs of a house, a household, or a business. A steward runs the, the thing. You got the owner, and then you've got the steward that runs it like Joseph was to Potiphar. The fill-in there is managed. It's a person who managed the domestic affairs of a family and a family business. God put us on this earth 
and I believe strongly he gave us a stewardship responsibility over this earth. And you read about that in Genesis 1. They were to subdue it. They were to increase it. They were to care for the animals that God put there. So we have this responsibility, and I believe it's a Christian responsibility. And it's a responsibility to manage our environment. Now, you don't live a day of your life, you don't, if you follow the news, you don't hear something about the environment, about protecting the environment. We, gotta, we have to protect Mother Earth. God placed us here as stewards of planet Earth. His servants should set the example of caring for God's creation rather than wantonly exploiting it. Now, some of the things I've written here, you may not agree with. But these are things I want my grandchildren to be aware of. I want them to believe in some of these things, all of these things, because I believe in it. But you run it through your own grid and belief system, and, and you might see it a little different. There's a balance to achieve between using his creation and protecting it. Teach your children to respect nature, which includes a necessary use. Use the planet. Use plants. Use the animal kingdom. The current culture, having rejected God, relentlessly worships at the throne of environmentalism with its pantheistic philosophies. That means they worship nature. God is in nature. Nature is in God. It's pantheism. Protecting Mother Earth. Even elevating animals above humans. And that's why if you break the egg of a bald eagle, you can go to jail, but you can kill a baby, and it's okay. Distortion demonizing mankind as the ultimate environmental terrorists. Our world is so skewed in their understanding of earth and our relationship with it. Now, as a Christian, we should, be respons we should responsibly manage the earth that God has put us on. And, and we should take care of it. It's not our mother. We're not in danger of destroying it. God is going to destroy it. You know, if an environmentalist gets upset with some things we believe, wait till they see what Jesus does to this place when he comes back. He is going to destroy, he's going to burn it up and create a new heaven and a new earth. How dare him destroy our planet? It's not ours, it's his. He created it, and he's going to destroy it, and he's going to recreate it. And that's in the Old Testament, and that's in the New Testament. So, until the time that he comes back and destroys his creation and recreates it, here's some environmental ideas that I think are, can be, that are rooted in a biblical understanding. If you hunt. Anybody hunters in here? If you hunt. If you hunt, feed your family with it. If you fish, feed your family with it. Now, some people may not agree with that statement. I believe that if you're going to kill an animal, do it with purpose. That's a good purpose. And, and you know, back in the days of all the buffalo herds, they would shoot up the buffaloes from the trains just to see how many they could kill. I don't think that's a Christian thing to do. 
It's a waste of what God created. But if you're going to hunt, hunt with a, with a good purpose. Rather than littering, pick up trash. Don't pollute the waterways. Dispose of toxins responsibly. You know, we have to, at, at this church, in our maintenance department, there's times we have to dispose of paints. We don't pour them down a sink. We, we follow the guidelines that we're asked to follow to responsibly dispose of, of paints instead of just throwing them in the landfill. If you own animals, take care of them. Proverbs 12.10 says, A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. They take care of, of their animals. A righteous man will do that. Doesn't abuse the animal. He cares for the animal. If you have beasts of burden to ease your labor. Now, if we roll the clock back 150 years ago and we're in a farming community, they had beasts of burden to make life easier. They plowed fields with them. They hauled, they hauled product in wagons pulled by donkeys or horses or, and go back further, oxen and, and countries. Beasts of burden to make life easier for us. And God says in his word, both Old and New Testament, and I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 9.9, which is quoting from the law of Moses, for it is written in the law of Moses, thou shalt not muzzle the ox, mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? And the answer is, absolutely he does. So an oxen, it's tied to that post that it goes around and around the threshing floor and they're throwing the, the wheat there and it's walking over it and it's threshing out the grain. And when it's threshing out the grain, God put in his law. He wrote it in his law saying, you have to do this. Do what? Do not muzzle the ox. As it's working, and if it wants to lean over and eat some of that let it eat because it's laboring that is caring for the ox that's doing the labor to make your life easier. And God told them, let them eat. God cares for oxen. We should too. Recognize God's creation of the plant kingdom and use it to provide for man's necessities. You know, in this country, we practice sustainable forest management. We do. We cut down a tree, we plant more than one tree. We manage our forests. There, wasn't a, there was a day that we didn't do that as a nation. And it, was probably, it wasn't a, a Christian. We didn't change from a, for a Christian purpose. We changed because we realized we're going to run out of forests if we don't sustain them and manage them. And, and, so, and so the change took place, and that was a good thing. And we manage our forests. And it's not wrong to cut down a tree to build a house. Though I know there's tree huggers and they will go out and they'll drive spikes. They'll go into a forest and they'll drive spikes in trees so it, it ruins the wood and if you go to cut it, it destroys your saws and you lose your profit. And As though a tree is more important than a man and a woman and a child. No. No. We use the environment, that the earth that God placed you on. Don't waste don't waste things. Be frugal and steward God's creation. Now, I think that's a good Christian viewpoint personally. And here's what I'm going to do. 
I've already started a little bit with my grandkids. But this is important. Look, look at the next blank. Teaching biblical environmental stewardship with balance to your children and grandchildren will insulate them. It's going to insulate them from the errant environmental doctrines of a godless culture that worships and serves the creature more than the creator. Now, they're going to have the world screaming in their ears about environmentalism. I would rather my grandkids hear from us and have a biblical understanding about earth and the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom and how all this works and God created it and he made us stewards of his creation and gave us instructions about it. I'd rather them hear it from us and really develop earlier in life a biblical mindset about environmentalism so when they get in a classroom in a university somewhere and a professor wants to destroy all that God has done principle-wise that our kids are insulated. They have an understanding. They've already thought through some of these issues. You say, is this really that important? They will not escape it in America. They will not. It is in the culture. They need to be insulated. So, God made this grand earth. We learned how to map it. We learned how to navigate over it. And we're learning how to take care of it. In our discipleship program, we retitled it and completely redid it, and we call it sequoia. The sequoia trees growing in California, Sequoia National Forest, first time I, I went there, Susan and I happened to be with Pastor and Mrs. Eifert. So we drove all the way up and got up to the first sequoia tree that we saw, the first one, which means it, was, uh, it wasn't at the highest elevations yet, so it wasn't the really big, big ones. So it was a little... It was a little sequoia tree that was huge. And we got, we stopped, and actually Pastor Eifer and I jumped out of the car. We go over, we're hugging the tree. We're trying to get our arms around the tree, and we were just blown away with how big this tree was. And it was a little one. And, and we were going to go see the big ones. And we did see the big ones. And, uh, and talking to a ranger, I found out this that for 50 years we managed the Sequoia National Forest and no Sequoia trees were germinating. And we started, the, 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 the proper department started investigating what is going on with the Sequoia trees. They're not reproducing. Is it something that we're doing? And, uh, and they discovered what we were doing wrong. We were doing control burns of the forest floor so you wouldn't have raging forest fires. We didn't want raging forest fires destroying the trees. So we did small control burns, but what that meant was there was no raging forest fire. And the sequoia tree needs a raging forest fire because the limbs and the cones are so far up, 100 feet, this is 35 feet, 100 feet, the, the, the lowest branches, and the cones are up there, and it needs heat. It needs a lot of heat up there for the cone to open up and drop the seeds, and it needs the raging forest fire to burn off all the brush so the seed has fresh, good soil to drop on, to germinate. And we thought we were helping the sequoia forest, and we were ensuring its death. The way God designed it, it worked. The way we tried to implement it, it was with the lack of understanding.
God knows what he's doing. God's way works. So let's just trust him, and God's going to care for his environment, and we ought to do what we can to care for it as well. Let's teach our kids. The environment's important from God's perspective. Let's everybody stand. We're going to have a word of closing prayer. Yes, ma'am. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Look at that. Over around here in, in Asia. Yep. Thank you, Carol. There it is. It's a big, big earth we live on. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us, you, you give us your word that has such practical advice, has such direction for us. And if we would meditate on it, think about how you created and what your instructions were to us, it just gives us direction in life, direction even in training and speaking with our kids. And God, I pray that our voice in their ear and in their heart would be louder than the world's voice in their ear and in their heart. And may we insulate them with truth so when the error comes, as it surely will be coming, that they will withstand the error and cling to truth. Lord, I pray that our bonds of relationship will be built strong so they want to hear from us and they want to play with us and they want to be around us. And then when we speak your truth, they want to hear what we have to say. God, would you watch over our grandkids, watch over our kids as they raise our grandkids. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. I to know that we're living in the last days of the church age. Every day is a day closer and closer to the return of Christ. And you note, one commentator wrote, the end of history has already been written by God and revealed in the Bible. Mankind is not headed for a utopia, such as those envisioned by Plato or Karl Marx or others, but rather faces increasing chaos, devastation, and disaster until the end. Our planet and its occupants also face a terrifying future, far worse than any, even the most pessimistic environmentalist could ever imagine. Jesus predicted a future that is going to be filled with wars, pestilences, earthquakes, and false prophets. In fact, he said it will be the most difficult period of human history in the history of mankind, and because of that, he gave it a name, and that name is the Great Tribulation. The good news for Christians is, in the, in the church age, is we're going to be rescued. We're going to be raptured from the earth before it happens. And 1 Thessalonians 4 tells about that. If you missed last week's message, I encourage you to be able to look that up online about the rapture. And so, we're getting closer and closer to the return of Christ. We naturally have a question. What about America? And my message title today is the USA in Bible prophecy? It's a great question to ask, and it's important to all of us here who now uh, live in this country, but many here today have family and friends in other countries, and, and what happens to America can directly affect their lives as well. 
So would you please stand with me as I read from Luke chapter 21. We're going to jump right in here at verse 20. Luke chapter 21, the Lord Jesus preaching on the Mount of Olives about the last days. Luke 21, 20. And when ye see Jerusalem compassed with armies, surrounded by armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh, it is near. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in their countries enter thereunto. For these be the days of vengeance." that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. May we pray together. Father, thank you for this, this opportunity we have, the freedom we have, to gather together on your day, the Lord's day, to gather in your church and open your word to hear from heaven. And so, Father, I pray that as we, we take a, a peek into future events, give us understanding, give us wisdom on how we should live our lives today. I pray that if there is one here today that is not yet saved, watching online, they're not yet saved. May the Spirit of God uh, turn on the spiritual lights, bring conviction, and draw them to yourself to be born again into your family. Father, I pray that as we consider our nation and what we can do to be able to bring Christ to others, that we would be surrendered and willing to do so. Speak to our hearts, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. To deny the second coming of Jesus Christ is to deny large portions of the Bible. Every time the first coming is mentioned in the Bible, the second coming is mentioned seven times. Fifty times in the New Testament, we are exhorted to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. I mean, the promises of Christ's second coming are everywhere. Uh, there are literally hundreds of fulfilled prophecies confirming that the Bible is true and from God. Over 300 prophecies were fulfilled when Jesus Christ came into this world. His birthplace, Micah 5.2, Bethlehem. The time of his birth, Daniel 9, 24 to 27. The trip to Egypt as a toddler. Out of Egypt have I called my son, Hosea 11.1. 1. And then dozens of prophecies were fulfilled around the crucifixion. He would be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41.9. He would be sold for 40 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11.12-13. My hands and my feet would be pierced, Psalm 22.16. Think about this. 500 years before crucifixion was invented, it was predicted that Jesus would be crucified. Very impressive. Gambling for his garments, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. His resurrection, Mark nine, thirty-one. There in your notes, page two. Fulfilled Bible prophecy is God's proof to a skeptical world. Fulfilled Bible prophecy is God's proof 
to a skeptical world. You know, many scholars, many skeptics, they have set out time and again to disprove the Bible, uh, to write articles and books to say this Bible is wrong, and they want to back it up with evidence. And time and again, these same people find themselves believing, begging for God's mercy to be saved from the penalty of sin. And once they are gloriously saved, they turn around and write articles and books about their newfound faith. Oxford professor Sir William Ramsey, physicist Sir Isaac Newton, Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, biochemist Alistair McGrath, director of the British Museum Frederick Kenyon, journalist Lee Strobel in our day, Harvard professor Dr. Simon Greenleaf. I mean, some of the greatest intellectuals who have ever lived. They were strong and committed Christians, but they were first atheists. They were skeptics, but God's word brought God's truth to them. We have some here today. You were atheists. You were skeptic. Uh, you studied in a, a foreign religion. You were raised nothing, and you come face to face with the word of God, and you say, it's true. I believe it. I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. So many prophecies are fulfilled in the Old Testament, specific predictions about ancient cities and people and nations. Tyre, Nineveh, Jerusalem, Medo-Persia, Babylon, Greece, Rome. In the Bible, God speaks about 45 different nations. The most important nation in the world, what is it? It's Israel. Most important city in the world, what is it? Jerusalem. There in your notes, Jerusalem means city of peace. City of peace. Look at this quote from Jerusalem besieged by Eric Klein out of the University of Michigan Press. There have been 118 separate conflicts in and for Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been destroyed completely twice, besieged 23 times attacked an additional 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times. It has been the scene of 20 revolts and many riots. It has only changed hands completely, peacefully, twice in the past 3,000 years. Does that sound like a city of peace? Jerusalem has been the most attacked city in all of world history in all the world. Its days of peace are in the future, not in the past. When is peace coming to the city of peace? When the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes to the earth and sets up his kingdom, he is bringing peace to that city. Jesus predicted that not one stone of the temple would be left upon another, Matthew 24, verse 2. And here, the Roman general, Titus Vespasian, he conquered, he leveled Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The arch of Titus in Rome commemorates this triumph for all the world to see that Jesus' prediction was true. And so if you go to Rome today, this is what you see. We're going to see this incredible historical state on the journeys of Paul toward next fall. Let's take a close-up look at the arch showing the spoils of war. Notice the Jewish menorah from the temple. This is the candlestick. The trumpets 
from the temple, the table of showbread from the temple. Now, scholars believe that this is the original menorah from Solomon's temple. If not Solomon's temple, then certainly Zerubbabel's temple all the way down to the time of Christ. In Bible, if Bible prophecy is 100% accurate in the past, then we with eyes of faith can be confident that the Bible prophecies of the future will be fulfilled with 100% accuracy. And so preaching on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is answering a couple of questions from his disciples. When will you set up your kingdom? When is your return? Two days before his crucifixion, he teaches his disciples, and this portion of Scripture comes out of that. Next week, we will look at the general signs that will precede his return. But here in this chapter, verse 20, we have two specific signs. Number one, Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies, verse 20. Number two, the abomination of desolation will be set up. What is that? We'll give more details of that next week, but it's a statue that will be set up in the temple according to Jesus in Matthew 24, Revelation 13. This event of setting up this idol in the rebuilt Jewish temple, it occurs in the middle of the tribulation. Jesus gives a warning. What does he say in verse 21? Let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are outside in other countries enter into it. For these be the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Now, the days of vengeance is an Old Testament expression speaking of divine vengeance in the end times, Isaiah 61, 2. Another term, you've read it often in the Old Testament, it's called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. This is the day of the Lord, the tribulation period. Notice verse 23. Woe unto them that are with child, to them that give suck, and those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon the people. Uh, this will be an extremely difficult time. If you're an expectant mom, if you are a mother of a newborn, if you are weak, it's a difficult time of persecution. Verse 24. And they shall fall, Jerusalem shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. If you would take a pen or pencil, underline that phrase, the times of the Gentiles. Jerusalem falls to the European Gentile leader, the Antichrist. This time of the Gentiles is, is the period beginning in 586 B.C. when the Gentile domination is over the land of Israel. From 586, it continues all the way through the tribulation until Jesus Christ returns. He said, but isn't the land of Israel controlled by the Jews today? Well, not all of it. Large portions are controlled by the Arabs. In fact, most world leaders, including our own, including the United Nations, the EU, they want the Jews to give back more land to the Arab people. We are living in the times of the Gentiles right now the era of Gentile domination. It ends when Jesus returns. So what about America? What does the Bible say about the USA? How does it fit into Bible prophecy? What will happen to America in the tribulation period? Does the Bible say anything about our country 
in its prophetic writings. Well, when it comes to prophecy, beware of the false prophets. Here is a book, America in Prophecy. False prophet, false prophet. You can read prophetic books or you can read the Bible. Uh, many prophecy books are written by false prophets like this one. Number one bestseller, don't read it. Cost you six bucks, it's a waste of six dollars. I feel sorry for all the poor trees that had to die to be able to have this book printed. Don't buy it, don't read it, and, and if you come across a false prophet, don't, don't send me an email about it, all right? <laughs> Just hit delete and, and don't, don't pass it on. See, how do I know this is a false prophecy? Page 418. The United States of America is the beast of Revelation 13. Well, the Bible makes it clear that the beast is a symbolic term for a man. It's a reference to a man. He's called the Antichrist, 1 John 2, 18. He'll lead the ten-nation confederation, the European Union. Uh, he is a European leader. He's not an American. Page 583. The one true test of a believer is keeping the Sabbath. Those who worship on Sunday will take the mark of the beast. I'm not taking the mark. You're not taking the mark. It's not true. You say, where's that in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. It's in the book, but not in the Bible. Page 619, soul sleep for believers. It's not true of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not true of Moses and Elijah. And it's not true of your loved ones who have died and gone on to heaven. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present, conscious, awake with the Lord. At your time of death as a Christian, God dispatches his angels who usher us into God's presence according to the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke. False prophecy. We're to test the spirits. So just because someone put it on the Internet about America and prophecy does not mean that it is true. Is America in Bible prophecy? And the answer is no. No. What does the Bible say about America and prophecy? Nothing. I've read my Bible through many times. Many of you have read it through as well. And we've never found America in prophecy. All sound Bible scholars agree that America is not mentioned in the scriptures, is not mentioned in end times prophecies. John Walford, past president of Dallas Theological Seminary, prophecy expert, wrote Things to Come. He says... As far as I know, there is no passage in the Bible that directly speaks of any countries in the Western Hemisphere. It does speak of Asia, countries in Asia, Africa, and Europe. Now, in the history of the world, nations rise and nations fall. And though many nations will exist in the Millennial Kingdom, only one nation is promised to survive and thrive, and that is Israel. Jerusalem, its capital, is mentioned 881 times in the Bible. Okay, so what about America? We're definitely a superpower today. Some say we're the only superpower. If the USA is absent as a superpower in the tribulation, then what happened to our country? What do you think? What do you think will happen to America to be eliminated from being a superpower to not being a world player on the stage of the world at all in the tribulation. Well, we can look into the Bible, we can look into history, and we can see the possibilities. Let me give you five 
of those possibilities that will reduce the USA from being a superpower uh, to not having action in the tribulation. Number one, America could fall from within. Moral corruption could so eat away at the fabric of life in America, we're reduced to a second or third-rate world status because of the consequences of our sin. Has this ever happened in history? Well, maybe you're familiar with a book. The Rise and Fall of the what? The Roman Empire. Rome did not fall in a day, but it did fall. Uh, Rome was not conquered by outside sources. Rome had, had world empire status for centuries, but it crumbled from within. The similarities are frightening. Rise of divorce, rise of pornography, rise of homosexuality, rise of welfare, and the fall of morals. Right now, the U.S. debt is $28 trillion. We are the most indebted nation in the world. On this graph, you can see in the top left, the debt portion of the United States as compared to the other countries in the world. And uh, more than a third of all indebtedness in the world lays at the feet of the USA. 52% of U.S. population receives some type of government benefits and rising, according to Forbes magazine. You know, it was just 170 years ago, statesman from Europe, Alexis de Tocqueville, he came to America. He wanted to know what was making our nation so great, and he said, Christianity reigns without obstacle. I sought for the greatness of America in her harbors, in her fertile fields, in the greatness of her rich mines and vast commerce, in her public school system, in her democratic congress. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her power. America is great because she is good. If America ceases to be good... America will cease to be great. Right now, we are in a path of self-destruction as a nation, much like an alcoholic, much like a drug addict who's always blaming others for their problems, never taking personal responsibility for their actions. America could fall from within. America could fall from without. Second possibility with a reduced military budget, a weak president, weak Congress, an aggressor nation could attack and cripple us as a world power. Now, if you know, if you know what's going on in the world, I want, I want to ask you a question. Do you think there are countries, do you think there are, are leaders of other countries who would like to see the USA fall? If you think that, would you raise your hand? Oh, yeah. You just have to open the newspaper. You have to listen to the speeches of the UN. They want the U.S. to fall and to fall hard. The pages of history are filled with great nations that were defeated by other nations. Now, as of today, I will tell you honestly that I think this is unlikely. This is unlikely today. But it is one of the five possibilities of the future. Because of our Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, we are the best 
armed citizenry in the entire world. And Pennsylvania is one of the leading states of that. And let me tell you, the other 49 states may fall, but not us. I mean, we got too many hunters in Pennsylvania. We are well armed. So I don't think this is likely to happen at this time. Could happen in the future. Number three, judgment from God himself could devastate America. This could happen early on in the tribulation. Revelation chapter 6, 7 and 8. Revelation 9, 18. God judges sin. The greatest expression of God's judgment of sin outside of hell itself is the tribulation. 50% of the world population dies in that seven-year period. One judgment, one-fourth dies. Another judgment, one-third dies. 50% of the population. America is not exempt from these judgments. If you care for your family, if you care for your friends, if you care for your coworkers, if you care for your neighbors and strangers, now is the time to talk to them about the Lord Jesus Christ, about their relationship with God, because we don't know when this tribulation will begin. Now is the time with urgency. Don't let fear hold you back from talking to them about their relationship with God, about giving an invite to church. So two reasons why God's hand of cataclysmic judgment has not yet fallen on America. Number one is the USA has a large population of Bible-believing Christians. We send out more missionaries than anyone else, at least we have in the past. But now other countries are sending out Christian missionaries. The Philippines, China, believe it or not, South Korea. You know, it was in the 1950s when, when uh, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, when five missionaries were martyred, and the call came back to the churches of America, who will take their place? Thousands of men and women said, I will go, I will go, and they did. And now they're old and retired. And who will take their place? Who will take their place? God's judgment has been held back because of our population of Bible-believing Christians and missionaries. Secondly, the USA is a friend to Israel. Psalm 122.6, Genesis 12, I will bless them that bless thee, curse them that curse thee. At least we have been a friend of Israel in the past, but we are losing that one too with more politicians that do not want to be a friend to Israel, do not want to give aid to Israel. We have Bible-believing Christians saying, I really don't know that we should be a friend to Israel. I really don't know that we should send money to the Jewish people. Reformed Christians believe in replacement theology. Do you know what replacement theology is? It is that, that, that the church has replaced Israel that God has no plan for Israel. That's wrong. That is not in the Bible. Reformed churches, Protestant churches, Catholic churches. God has his done with the Jews. It's not true. The Jews are moving back to the land in fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Ezekiel 37, Jeremiah 31. I love to talk to people that are Reformed and say, God has no plan for the Jews. I, I ask, why are the Jews moving back in their land from all over the world? And the answer is, God said they would in the last days. We're living it. We're seeing it. What will happen to America? Now we get to a good one. Number four, revival. Revival can come. 
Do you know that one of the most wicked cities of the ancient world was Nineveh? It was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire in the 8th century. God pronounced judgment on that city. And God sent a prophet, you know his name, his name is Jonah. The city was so bad and so wicked and so evil to its enemies, so torturous, Jonah said, I'm not going to go. I don't want those people to become believers. And so he got in a ship and said, I'm going to Spain. I'm running away from God. He ran away from God's call. The storm came. And, and Jonah said, I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. And so they threw him overboard. And we know what happened. The storm stopped. He thought he was dying. But God prepared a fish. A great whale swallowed up Jonah. He was there three days and three nights with the decaying, putrefying fish and seaweed. And do you know what he did in the belly of that whale? He repented. He asked God for forgiveness. And, and three days later, uh, that whale spit him up on dry land. And, and you see, that's so crazy. No, no, it's actually happened in history a couple of times where, where sailors and whalers have been swallowed and rescued. But when he landed on that shore, and now he's going to go to the city of Nineveh in chapter 3, how do you think he looked? Maybe some seaweed on his shoulder. What do you think the gastric juices did to the pigmentation of his skin? You think it maybe changed color? And then he shows up in the city. It's a massive city with hundreds of thousands of people. And he says, repent and turn to God or in 40 days uh, you're going to be judged. And the Bible says an amazing thing happened. Revival happened. And from the least unto the greatest, Jonah 3, 5, they turned to God. You know what God did? God postponed the judgment on their city. For 140 years, it wasn't until they turned back into their sin, 140 years later, God then brought the Babylonians and judgment eventually came to Nineveh. I pray for America. I pray revival will sweep our land. It's my heart's desire. It's your heart's desire. That's why you're in God's house today. If Christians would, uh, would wake up out of their spiritual sleep of carnality and worldliness, we get on fire for God, seek to win our country for the Lord Jesus Christ, we could see a Nineveh-like revival in our land. Not just thousands coming to Christ, but millions coming to Christ. It could happen here. And many are coming to Christ. They're coming to Christ in Asia. They're coming to Christ in Africa. They're coming to Christ in these Arab nations in spite of government persecution, government oppression. If God can bless them in the midst of, of that threat of persecution and bring people to Christ, can't he do it here too? Yes, he can. He can use you. He can use me. We need to get on fire for God whether persecution comes or not. Now, how will you respond to the bad decisions of the president, of the Congress, of the Supreme Court? There are three attitudes. One is pessimism. This country is lost. It's too far gone. If that is your opinion, at the end of the message, you need to be on your knees. If your opinion is apathy, I don't care, it makes no difference what I do, What's the use? At the end of the message, you need to get on your knees and ask God to change your heart. A third, a third response is determination. The darker the night, the brighter the light. 
You can curse the darkness or you can start lighting candles and you can let God use you to influence others. Why do we have a nursery? We get those kids in the nursery because we want them brought up in church and, and then as soon as they get to the toddlers, we begin, begin to sing them Christian songs and, and then they hit elementary. We begin to teach them the Bible stories. The Bible is true and tell them these Bible stories and we present Jesus Christ to them. And then when they hit the teenage years, we want apologetic lessons, how to live the Christian life, to choose Christ because Christ is is better than the world as we heard our choir sing today they become singles and they become salt they become light all over this nation we can make a difference and if revival were to come and the rapture happens it would put the USA into a tailspin for most of the tribulation we would be powerless on the world stage if a large part of our population went missing one more possibility. Number five, the USA could be viewed as part of the united Europe in prophecy. Since many, if not most, of our ancestors came from Europe, some have suggested that the USA is simply viewed as an ally of the ten-nation confederation ruled by the Antichrist, the EU. Even much of our Latino and Spanish population originated where? Spain? Portugal. So when the Bible gives references to the United States of Europe, the Gentile nations, we're simply lumped in together with them. Now, I don't think so, but that is the view of some scholars, all right? Five possibilities. America could fall from within, moral decay. America could fall from without, attacked by other nations, unlikely at this time. We could be judged by God before or after the tribulation begins, we could have revival. Uh, many Christians would, would come to, they would, people would come to Christ, and then the rapture would cripple the USA. Number five, be considered as part of an ally of the World European Confederation. So what do I think? What do I think is the most likely scenario? Here's the answer. A combination of some of these possibilities. Sin and moral corruption is already bringing a decline in America, already bringing chaos to the cities. You can't deny it. The Japanese, the Europeans, the Chinese have already beaten us economically. Revival can come. We can continue to lead people to Christ. Many key leaders and, and large parts of our population could be saved and raptured. Also, both natural and supernatural judgments will fall on the USA in the tribulation time. The USA is not going to be exempt from what you read about in Revelation 6 to 19. So a combination of these things could reduce the USA from being a superpower in the tribulation. But that's not the main question, what's going to happen to America. The main question is, what's going to happen to you? Are you ready? Are you serving Christ today? the real and most important question is, are you going to be raptured? Are you going to go to heaven when you die? Do you know for certain that you're born again? There was a time you gave your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Not, not were you baptized. Not were you confirmed. Not did you do sacraments. Not did you join the church. Not did you believe, but did you go from your head to your heart and trust that Jesus died for you to forgive your sins and that he is the only way to heaven and, and you are with him. You're following him. 
Christian, are you serving Christ in this dark hour? Are you helping to expand the kingdom of God? Are you, are you helping to be able to, to build God's church? Or are you more concerned about your own rights and your own feelings and your own opinions? Now is the time that we would humble ourselves, confess our sins, confess the sins of our nation, seek God, share our faith with others. There in your notes. Do it for your nation. Do it for your kids. Do it for your grandkids. But most of all, do it for Jesus Christ. Now's the time. Church family, there's an urgency that we love and live for our Savior. May we pray. Father, thank you for our time to, to open the Word of God to see and hear about what you have said will come to pass. And Father, I pray, I pray that our hearts will be open and ready to do what you'd have us to do. Heads about, eyes are closed as we show respect to our neighbor. If you were to die today, do you know for certain that heaven is your home because you have trusted Christ and him alone for your salvation. There was a time you made a conscious commitment to say, I want to follow Jesus Christ. I believe he is the Son of God who died and rose again for me, and I'm trusting in him alone for my forgiveness and salvation. If that's you, would you simply raise your hand all over our congregation today? All over. Thank you. You may put your hands down. Thank you for your honesty. May I say to you today, the Bible says... The day you hear this good news is the day of your salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And so if you're not sure that heaven's your home, without joining this church, without getting baptized, maybe you're watching online at home, but you're not convinced in your heart with peace that you are a true and genuine Christian, call upon him today. Receive him today. Would you pray with me right now? Whether you're here or at home, you're not sure heaven's your home, but the Spirit of God is tapping on your heart. Trust Him now. Pray with me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that He died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and become my Lord and Savior today. Please save me today. Heads about, eyes are closed. If you just made that commitment, may I say to you, welcome to the family of God. I'd like to pray for you. Anyone at all here, just simply raise your hand. Pastor, I just pray with you, and I meant it. Anyone at all, just hold your hand up high for a moment. I want to pray for you today. Anyone at all? Anybody at home watching online, contact us that we may help you. Now, Christian, do you want to pray for your country, your family, your church, your state? Do you want to pray for America? If you are able, if you are able, would you join me? Would you, on bended knee, would you bow, if you're able physically, to be able to bow now on your knees? The Bible says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, 
Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God wants us to pray for our country, to pray for our leaders, to intercede, and then to speak up, to share Christ with others. As Brother Dan sings, would you surrender? Would you pray for our nation now? God, we pray for our country. We pray for revival. I pray for our church family and other Bible-believing churches that we would be on fire for Jesus Christ, loving you supremely, sharing the good news of Christ with others. God, would you just hold back judgment? We confess the sins of our nation, the sins of immorality, the sins of taking the lives of uh, babies in the womb, the sins of, of abuse and depression. God, I pray that we will turn back to you as a nation. We pray for our president and vice president, those in Congress and Supreme Court. God, save these men and women. May they look to the Bible to make decisions that would be righteous in your sight. God, help us to be salt and light in these last days. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Bible tonight, please open to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 this evening. As we go verse by verse here in this book, God speaks to our hearts. We find four key people in the chapter. Saul, who is persecuting the church. We have Philip, who was a deacon who became evangelist. Simon, the sorcerer, who wanted to buy God's power. And now we have the Ethiopian eunuch. The title of my message tonight is The Value of One. If you are joining us at home tonight, watching online, be sure to stay with us to the very end as we have a special song uh, by that title this evening. Would you please stand with me now as I read from Acts 8, beginning in verse 20, 26. We find ourselves in the city of Samaria. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all of her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. He was returning and sitting in his chariot, reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? 
And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speakest the prophet this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, a water hole, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found, was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. What a story. Father, thank you for our time to read your word. Thank you for uh, the love of Jesus Christ and this church family. I thank you for a people of God that love you, that love one another, that love the lost. And I pray even as we see Philip's uh, sharing God's love tonight that you would touch our hearts, encourage us, uh, strengthen us, empower us uh, to be light in our community and world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. God wanted Philip to leave a great revival that was happening in the city of Samaria to reach one person, just one person. And he wasn't even a full-blooded Jew. And because he was a eunuch, he was denied access into the temple. He is a Gentile convert to Judaism. And God sent Philip down to the desert to find one man. Look at the picture. Look at that lonely road stretching across the desert. This is what Philip saw. He is going to find a man seeking and searching. He wants to know God, but he needs someone to help him. God says, Philip, I want you to go and talk to him. This man is important to me. And if he's important to me, Philip, I want him to be important to you. So the question is, how important is it to me to lead people to Jesus Christ? Is that important to you tonight? I've read articles that state that most Christians and most church members have never led one soul to Christ. Now, I pray that is not true of our congregation. The only thing worse that not leading someone to Christ is a Christian not trying to lead someone to Christ. And so my prayer for you, for me tonight, is that we will all catch a vision of personally leading someone to Christ. I want you to know that God can and will use you to share your faith. Jesus said, God has chosen you 
and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, John 15, 16. Now, what's the fruit of an apple tree? It's apples. We were just at a, a free con orchard a few weeks ago. Lots of apples, probably tens of thousands of apples. Uh, if you have a banana tree, what's the fruit of a banana tree? It's bananas and a pear tree, pears. What's the fruit of a Christian? It's another Christian. It is souls. Some think the fruit of a Christian is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. No, no, that's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of a Christian is another Christian. People say, Pastor, I've tried to talk to people, and they're just not interested. They don't want to hear about religion. They don't want to hear about faith. They don't want to hear about Jesus. Well, you're right. Maybe they're not interested today. But tomorrow, when their loved one suddenly dies, and they begin to think about their own death, God can use the witness that you gave to bring back to their hearts and minds how they can be saved. So why? Why most Christians do not share their faith? Well, one reason is fear. That's an obvious one. I am afraid what others might say. I am afraid what others might think. We need to be more afraid of displeasing God. We need to be thinking about where people will spend eternity if they do not get saved. Death and hell were cast into what? The lake of fire. This is the second death. And then lack of knowledge. Fear, I'm afraid what others might say, lack of knowledge. I don't have all the answers. Who does? Who does? Just say, good question. I don't have that, the answer to that question. Give me a couple days and I'll, I'll try and find out for you. Call Pastor Colton. He'll help you out, right? <laughs> Number three, backslidden. God can't use me because I'm living in sin. Well, one easy solution, get right with God. Get right with God. How? Ask God to forgive you of your sin. And if you have sinned against others, if you have wronged them, you go to them and you ask them to forgive you and be done with it. What did the choir sing this morning? Every sin or crime we have ever done is no match for Jesus' blood. Nothing ever can, nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. God's power his mercy, His grace, His blood, His forgiveness is greater than all your sin. God's grace is greater than our sin. Uh, God's forgiveness is so much greater. He will, he will bury it in the deepest part of the sea. He will put it behind His back. He will remember your sins no more. Some people may try to push you down for your past sin, but not the Lord. He forgives you. He lifts you up. Just read Hebrews 11. And then not gifted, not gifted. I can't, I can't be a witness. I'm not gifted. I've had several people tell me over the decades uh, that, that, that they can't share their faith because that's not my gift. Well, you're partly right. That's not your gift because it's nobody's gift. Witnessing is not a gift. Witnessing is a command from Jesus. Jesus commands it in all four Gospels, and then he repeats in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. How important is it to me to lead people to Jesus Christ? It's so important that Jesus, at his ascension, do you know what he called his followers? He didn't call them Christians. He called them what? Witnesses. We are witnesses. We're either going to be a good witness or a bad witness. We're going to be a faithful witness, unfaithful, inconsistent. What kind of witness would you like to be? And then why Christians do not share their faith 
Well, it's just not important. The Calvinist says, God is going to save them anyway. He doesn't need me to help. You know, the backslidden Christian says, I know it's important, but it's just not important enough for me to actually do it all the time. And so God gives a command. In the Greek, the tense, it's, it's, it's an imperative. An imperative is a, can, a command. It means do this. Do this. So it's not a gift. It is a command, and it needs to be important. So let's, let's just be honest. I think we need some motivation. Let's suppose, let's suppose I had 10 bags of money that I lined up here on this platform. And each bag would be $1,000. Because this morning, someone gave $10,000 to encourage witnessing. So 10 bags, $1,000 in each bag. And therefore, the first 10 people who by this time tomorrow will share the gospel with an unbeliever and invite them to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. The response of the person would not have a bearing on whether, whether or not you could receive the bag of money or not. I would then announce that at 8 a.m., Someone would be stationed at that door because we have a school, the building's locked up. And at 8 a.m., the first 10 people that arrived and gave the name of the person they witnessed, they could walk in that door, come up these steps, and pick up the bag of $1,000 and leave. Now, the question would be, at 8 p.m. tomorrow night, would there be any bags left? Well, I can tell you where I would be at 7.30 Monday morning. I'd be at Wawa looking for someone, waiting for a ride to talk to, right? And let's witness to them. And whether they get saved or not, witness to them. Then you come over here and you pick up a bag of $1,000. Now, honestly, do you think there would be any bags left by Monday night? No. Now, if we would share our faith for an earthly reward, why would we not share our faith for a heavenly reward? May I say to you that the heavenly reward is a million times greater than a bag of $1,000 of cold, hard cash. You will be so glad. Are we more willing to witness for earthly reward, reward or the heavenly? So here in Acts 8, we find Philip sharing his faith in Samaria. He left Jerusalem, verse 5, because of a great persecution, verse 1. Uh, Philip was a deacon. Now he's, he's being used by God to share the good news of Christ. He comes to Samaria, and God is using him to cast out demons, to heal people. Uh, God is, because the New Testament has not yet been written, Mark 16, these signs will follow them to believe. And they cleared out the Samaritan Memorial Hospital, and they brought all the people to Philip, and he healed them under the power of God. He preached to them. The Bible says there was great joy in that city. Verse 8. News travels to the apostles. Peter and John come. The Holy Spirit indwells these new Christians, putting the stamp of approval of the Jerusalem church on these folks. Now, there are three conversion stories in Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10. What is remarkable is they represent the entire human race. Do you remember the sons of Noah? What are the names of the sons of Noah? Shem, Ham, Japheth. Watch. Watch. The Ethiopian eunuch 
is a son of Ham. Chapter 8. Chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus, a Jew, is a son of Shem. Chapter 10, Cornelius, a Gentile, is the son of Japheth. Three men who are saved to show us that Jesus Christ loves the entire world and that anyone who comes to Christ can be saved. Now, let me share with you three keys in, in uh, sharing our faith and for people to be saved. Uh, first of all is the, the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. We find down here in verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go near, join thyself to the chariot. It was the work of God that took Philip out of a great revival down south to reach one person. The Holy Spirit is orchestrating this work to reach one person. Uh, Jesus said the Holy Spirit is doing the work of convicting and convincing of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. He does that all over the world. The Spirit of God. There, there, there's the law written in the hearts, Romans 2. God's Spirit is, is drawing people uh, to the Lord. God is not willing that any perish, but that all come to repentance. It's not our responsibility to save people. How many times have you heard a new Christian say, oh, well, well, you know, well, they saved me. Uh, we just had a new member fellowship a couple months ago, and the, uh, this, this fellow looks at me and says, well, this guy right here, a uh, pastor saved me. And so I do what I always do. I interrupt quietly and say, well, you know, I, I've never really saved anyone. <laughs> never have, never will. Uh, but I just, we, we share the good news, and then the Lord does the saving. It's a work of the Spirit of God. Salvation is a work of God. Three keys, the, uh, the, uh, the Spirit, and then notice the Word of God. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. This man was reading the Bible. He was reading Isaiah. You know, for 37 years, I come to the pulpit with the Bible in my hand. I come with God's Word. Now, I, I know some pastors are coming with their iPad and the Bible. That's okay. It's got to be a Bible, though. And, and until the last Sunday that I preach, I will have a Bible in my hand. It's God's Word. It's God's message. You don't want to hear my opinion. You want to hear God's Word. And so the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God, and he convicts a man, a woman, a child, a teen. Well, didn't this man have both? Isn't the Spirit of God working? Yes. Didn't he have the Word of God? Yes, he had the Isaiah scroll, but he's not yet saved. He needs something else. What does he need? He needs a willing Christian. A willing Christian. God's Holy Spirit uses a man, a woman, a young person to deliver the Word of God that results in someone's salvation. So let's Let's look at the steps of a soul winner. Why did God use Philip? Well, the first thing I want you to see is he was walking with the Lord. You want God to use you? You need to walk with the Lord. Verse 26, the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Arise, go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. Philip is sensitive to the leading and nudging of the Holy Spirit. Being close to God is important for all of us. He heard what God said, and he obeyed immediately. An effective witness is in the Word of God every day. We call that devotions. An effective witness is talking to God in prayer and trusting God. And you will sense it. You will sense it. You will sense a nudge. You'll, you'll see an opportunity. 
You know, maybe it's a bulletin board at a, at a restaurant or, or a Wawa, and you say, you know, I, I, should, I should probably put that up. And while you're putting up, someone comes by, and they say, what are you doing? And you say, hey, I just want you to know. And then you tell what's going on. Uh, we, have, we have the Christmas season coming up. We have the men's night and ladies' night next Sunday night. We have opportunities to give an invitation. And when you see someone, you, you, you talk, you say something to get the conversation going. And you're walking with the Lord. You're sensitive to the nudges of the Holy Spirit. Letter B, he was available to be used by God. Notice in verse 27. He arose and went. Behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch uh, who was in charge of the treasury of uh, the queen of the Ethiopians had come to worship in Jerusalem. He, Philip, he, this man is returning and sitting in his chariot, chariot reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. Philip is available to be used by God. Not only is he close to the Lord, but he is willing, he's willing to serve the Lord. He's willing to, to be obedient. He's not afraid to make some sacrifices, not afraid of being put out, not afraid for the Lord to mess up his schedule. Has God ever messed up your schedule? Go to the ministry. <laughs> God will mess up your schedule. You can make your plan, and I, I love to teach pastors and leaders on, and missionaries on time management and goal setting and planning, and, and, but there has to be this, this chunk of your time, your day and your week, where God brings an interruption, but it's a divine interruption. And he is available to be used by God, and so he is obedient, and he is willing to serve. And then notice he took the initiative, verse 30. Verse 30, Philip ran thither to him. You saw that lonely road. I can only imagine that he's down there, and, and, and then this chariot comes along, and, and he, he, he uh, has this prompting from the Spirit, the message from the Spirit, and so he runs to him, and he heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and he says, do you understand what you are reading? Philip took the initiative. Don't, don't wait for people to come to you and ask you this question. Can you tell me how to go to heaven? Now, is there anyone in here tonight, uh, maybe friend, family, coworker, that's happened to you? Has anyone ever asked you that question? Can, can you tell me how to go to heaven? A couple of you. Yeah, a couple of you. It doesn't happen often, does it? We're typically the ones taking the initiative. It's happened to me a couple of times. I, uh, it, it's, it's rare, but it usually happens to me when I'm, when I'm out and about uh, sharing my faith. I, 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 when I first began the church, we were just, we were just um, a couple of months old, and I was going door-to-door -door on Signal Hill Road in King of Prussia. It's a U-shaped road uh, that hits Crossfield Road, not far, like 30 seconds from where we were meeting. Uh, later, we discovered that uh, Morris and Dorothy Rudder, not Rudder, lived on Signal Hill's road. And so I'm going door-to-door -door one afternoon, and this man's out there sitting in a chair, and, and uh, he, later I found out he had severe Alzheimer's. And uh, so I, as I'm walking up the driveway, the wife comes down the driveway. And uh, I said, I, I'm Pastor Wendell. We started a new church in the middle school. And, and she said, I just have one question. Can you tell me how to go to heaven? Can you tell me how to go to heaven? Don't even know her name. I thought, wow, God is at work. 
and she was saved that afternoon at her, uh, at her dining room table. I thought, man, this starting a church thing's pretty easy. It's great. You just go out, and people come up, and they ask you, how, do, how, how can I go to heaven? And so we had uh, three discipleship lessons that, uh, that Pastor Elstock had helped me print up uh, when we were sent up here. And so we went through discipleship lesson A, and that was on assurance, and B was on baptism. And a week later, we did the C on, on church. You want to get baptized? Yes. I want to get baptized, can't wait. And, and then so we explained to her uh, how we're going to be able to do that. And got her baptismal robes back in those days. And, and then I called, I called her the Saturday before the baptism. It's our second baptism that we're going to be having. Upper Mary Middle School, uh, first baptism we borrowed a church, second baptism we baptized in the school. And when I called to confirm it all, she said, I'm not getting baptized. I want to but I can't. She said, I called the priest, and he said, if you get baptized, we will not let you or your husband be buried in our Catholic cemetery. She said, my husband is going to die soon. We've already bought our cemetery plots. I want to get baptized, but I can't get baptized. I don't have the money to buy more cemetery plots. And I thought, wow, this church planning thing is going to be really hard. I'm in a spiritual battle for souls because I know who was controlling that priest that said that, and it wasn't the Spirit of God. We are to take the initiative. We're to talk to people. We smile. We say hello. We get the conversation going so that we might be able to get to the place where we share the gospel. Spurgeon said, pardon me, are you a Christian? Moody asked the same question. Are you a Christian? Uh, someone came to Moody and said, Mr. Moody, I really don't like the way that you share the gospel. And uh, uh, he asked her, well, well, how do you share the gospel? She said, well, I really don't share the gospel. He said, well, I, I like my way better than your way. <laughs> now, it might not be such a good question today because everyone thinks they're a Christian. Are you a Christian? They're going to say, yes, yes, I'm spiritual. But we can begin by sharing our testimony of how God worked in our heart and in our life and in our family. And after some conversation, it's very appropriate to introduce the gospel with the question, do you know for certain if you died today that you'd go to heaven? Or to say something like, I'd like to share with you the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Or to be able to, uh, to talk about, well, my, my family, uh, we, this is what was going on in my family then, and this is what God did for us. And you transition to be able to share the gospel. And so he took the initiative. Letter D, he was polite. He was polite. I think a lot of Christians should underline this point. Verse 31, the, the minister of finance, the eunuch, says, How can I understand except someone guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him on this chariot. The place of the scripture which he read is, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb dumb before a shearer. He opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So he's reading the scroll, 
And then the Ethiopian answered, the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet? Of himself? Of some other man? So Philip approached the man with tactfulness, with respect. He let the eunuch ask the questions, and he sat and he listened quietly. He's just being respectful. He's being, being kind. And then he gave the gospel, verse 35. Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. You, you understand why this man did not understand what he was reading. Because the Jewish priests and rabbis of that day, they were divided on what this means. Some said this scripture refers to the Jewish nation, and, and they have been misused and abused and oppressed. And some of the rabbis said, well, this is, uh, uh, this is referring to Isaiah, which is what he asked in the question. And there was a third group that said, well, well, this is referring to a coming Messiah. He didn't know. He needed someone to come alongside who knew Christ and the Word of God to share what the Bible was saying. And so that's what happened. He didn't talk religion. He didn't talk politics. He didn't talk about the weather. He told him about Jesus. How? Starting at that scripture that he was reading, Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, and he began explaining, this is Messiah, this is Jesus. And then he asked for a decision, verse 36. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water, a water pool. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered, Look at this. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the man is gloriously born again. You will hear pastors on the radio. They'll say things like, Well, we, we shouldn't invite people to Christ. Churches shouldn't have invitations and pressure people to be saved. We shouldn't do that. And I said, well, what Bible are you reading? What Bible are you reading? Uh, the Bible says that Jesus said, come, come unto me, all ye that, that uh, are, 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 are labor and heavy. You're, you know what it is. <laughs> Labor and heavy laden. Come! That's the point. Come! Jesus said come. Peter says come. Paul says come. Philip says come. Revelation. The Spirit says come. The bride says come. And the hyper Calvinist says don't come. Don't come. I'm going to stick with the Bible. I'm going to stick with the Bible. And he invites him uh, to respond to the gospel. Who is this man who believed? Verse 27 tells us, He is a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure. You understand who he is? He, he, is, he is in the, uh, uh, he, he's the top dog over all of the finances of the country of Ethiopia. He, he's in the cabinet. He is the minister of finance. He is an important man. I don't know how you picture this, 
But when I was younger, I pictured this guy driving the chariot. He's got one hand on the reins. He's got another hand on the scroll. And you just wonder, how is he balancing this? How is he doing that? That's not the picture. If this guy is as important as the Bible says he is, then he is traveling with a great host of servants and minor officials with him. He isn't sitting, driving the chariot. He has someone else driving the chariot. He's sitting in the back. Maybe he's protected uh, by a canopy from the sun. He's got a private chauffeur, and he's riding in style. And while he's riding along, uh, this guy comes running up while he's reading, and uh, uh, he, he gets the question, and he says, well, come and join me. Look at verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. That means it was moving, right? That's why Philip had to run to be able to join in, and he was invited by the eunuch to join in. And so he's on the chariot, he gets saved, and then they stopped the chariot. He commanded the chariot to stand still. They went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Proof that they were riding along, proof of baptism by immersion. I, I don't, I don't, I think if it was pouring, he would just use his canteen. And they would stop and he'd get his canteen and he'd sprinkle it on his head, pour it on his head. You're baptized. That doesn't picture the death, burial, and resurrection. I don't think they both went down into the water and then he, he cupped his hands and kind of did this thing. The word baptize means to immerse. It means to dip. Uh, it, it, you take your Dunkin' Donut and you dunk it. Those are Baptist donuts. I mean, you go under, you go under the coffee. And he went under the water and he came up out. And this is, this is biblical believer's baptism. The man is never mentioned again in the Bible. But tradition says he returned to his people and he shared the gospel with them. You know, in Psalm 68, 31, it says that the people of Ethiopia will turn to God. What a cool prophecy. Maybe this is the man that God used to fulfill that prediction. The end of verse 39 says, He went on his way rejoicing. And when Jesus comes in your heart, you just go on rejoicing. Verse 39. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. Wow, what do you think that is all about? The Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. Verse 40, Philip was found at Azotus. That's, that's along the coast. That's near Ashdod. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. I, I think of how the Bible talks about Elijah being, being caught up. God swoops him up away to do a new job. Uh, more people need to hear this wonderful message. And he gently drops him off at Azotus, and he preaches his way home. The same way the apostles did when John and Peter left Samaria. They went to all the villages throughout Samaria preaching, sharing Christ. This is, this is, this is God's business. As Brother Mark prayed, that we would keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is that we will be lights. We will share the good news. So will you be sensitive? Will you walk with God this week? Stay close to the Lord. Will you be sensitive to God's nudging and prompting to be able to, to speak to someone, 
to share, attract, an invite to church, something on social media to let people know he is the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe this week, like a farmer, you will plow and you will plant and you will, will water. Maybe you'll reap a harvest. Uh, pray and ask God to make you usable and then be used by God. Let God use us. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Philip. Thank you that he is such an example to us to be able to care for souls, to be willing to go out of our way, to be obedient. Lord, we know that, that many won't believe and they won't receive the truth. But God, you're using us to carry the good news to others. Church family, in the quiet of this, of this moment, can I ask you are, you, are you close to the Lord? If not, come back to him tonight. Are you caring for others? Do you see that whatever service you do in our church family, it is, first of all, serving God, and secondly, it's serving others. A mom's not going to get saved if she's holding a crying baby in her arms. We need nursery workers, children's workers, Sunday school teachers, helpers, greeters, escorters, people welcoming others to God's house that they might hear your word to be saved. If you're here tonight and you've never trusted Christ, we invite you to receive him. Anyone at all, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, you say, I want to be saved tonight, Pastor. Anyone, I want to be saved. Just simply raise your hand. It's not joining the church. It's receiving God's free gift of salvation. Anyone at all. If you're watching online at home, we invite you to come and receive the Lord. Father, thank you for the encouragement we have in your house. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.